Welcome to IGC. If you're new here, my name is Jetsy. I'm a pastor here. Um, we're currently in the midst of a sermon series on 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it up uh, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, we'll start in verse 11. You can also look on in your bulletin. So where are we? Where are we in the book of Peter? Well, we, we've, we've been walking through this book. We've seen that we are exiles, that the church... The church is a is a people of exiles, meaning we don't belong. We don't we fundamentally don't belong to this world. And, and Peter uses this image of, a, of immigrants, immigrants, foreigners, exiles. And so Peter has marched us right up to this to this point. We've gotten to the meat. Today we're getting into the very meat of Peter's letter. He has he has told us who we are, that we're a, a holy nation. That we're a, a people for God's own possession. And today, he's going to give us some, some implications, some applications. What does that mean for our life in this world? Alright? So let's look. Let's jump in. This is verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me over God's word? Father in heaven, we thank you that it is entirely of grace, Lord that we stand before you. Lord, in your word is meant to be gracious to us, to communicate your heart of love for us. And so we pray that as, as we jump into this text, Lord, that your spirit will be moving and working in our hearts. We confess to you that we are not a submissive people. Lord, and that we so often run to things that enslave us, not free us. So Lord, would, you, would your word, the word of Christ, would it free us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So I have the joy of talking about two fantastic subjects, freedom, no, 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 that's, we're actually going to focus on submission, submission, yay, everyone's favorite topic, and politics, right, the things you're never supposed to talk about at a, uh, at a polite dinner, right, politics, submission, so how are we going to do this, well, Peter is saying if we're going to live in, in, as exiles in a foreign country, we need some principles. We need to understand ethics. Ethics is just a fancy way of, of how do we determine what's right? How do we live? What's our conduct? What measures our conduct? What should I do in this situation? And what Peter is going to lay out for us is a principle, an, an exile ethic, if you, if you would have it. An exile ethic, and it's going to be surprising, so let's jump into it. What, what is this, this exile ethic? We're going to, well, we, we see he begins by reminding us of who we are once again in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. 
Okay, that's our identity. When you move into a new place, there will be cultural practices and customs that you do not or should not adopt. And he's saying specifically, this, this, this metaphor is referring for him to sinful desires. Now the literal Greek here is passions of the flesh. Now what that, what is that? What are, what are passions of flesh? flesh. Well, the term refers to any kind of undisciplined impulse, like an unbridled sensual indulgence. So think about gluttony, sexual lust, debauchery, drunkenness, this general kind of pleasure-seeking. Paul says, or sorry, Peter says, don't do this. Abstain from these things. They're natural. They're natural to our flesh. Like, we so easily do it. But they're not neutral. They're natural, but not neutral, because what they do is they war against our souls, Peter says. They war against our soul. They even reduce and minimize our souls. And then he moves on in verse 12. He says, live such good lives. Now, there are two words behind the English word good in our passage. Two different words that you need to know. There's agathos, Agathos and Kalos. Now, Agathos stresses the very moral dimension of goodness, of moral rightness. We see this word in verse 15. If you look at your passage, if you look at verse 15, it says that it's God's will that we should do good, Agathos. Now, verse 12, the good is different, lives such good lives. That word is Kalos. And Kalos stresses the aesthetic part dimension of of good we it could be uh it could be translated beautiful excellent praiseworthy so we have this good over here that's kind of this very just purely moral right and we have this this what is beautiful what is good the goodness is beautiful you've probably heard of the triad of the good the true and the beautiful we have two of them right here the good and the beautiful he says live such good lives that is live such beautiful lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God when you're in exile and you're a foreigner there's much more at stake in your conduct right you represent a whole people a whole nation uh, I, I lived I can I can barely say that I live abroad because I lived in Canada which is about the most American place you could live but when I lived there, I loved it. One of the first questions they would always ask me, Canadians, when they find out they're American, do you own a gun? Because <laughs> in their mind, every American owns a gun. And I loved that I, I got to, as I answered them, should I tell you my answer? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. But, but I, I represent a people, right? And Peter is saying very similarly that, that we, as exiles, we represent our home country, which is to say we represent God. And so there's a lot at stake. Live such good lives among the pagans so they see you. They see your goodness. They see what you're about. And they actually, even though they might not like you, they have to reckon with the fact that you're doing good. That's the ethical principle here. Live such beautiful the, 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 the exile ethic that Peter gives us is actually beauty. It's beauty. Live such a compelling, beautiful life that when people look at your life who don't even know Jesus, 
they're compelled by it. There's a winsomeness to beauty. Peter says, as exiles live in a winsome way that witnesses to the beauty of God. That is our sermon right there in summary. I'm going to say it again. As exiles live in a winsome way that witnesses to the beauty of God. And when we think of morality, we in the church, we often think about what's true. Like, what does the Bible say? And that's, that's a good impulse. But Peter here is coming from a different angle. Not only should we ask what is true, we should ask, what is beautiful? What is beautiful? Now, Peter is right that the pagans would accuse the Christians of doing wrong. There were all sorts of, of weird accusations that came at Christians in the first and second uh, centuries. Some Roman emperors accused the, the, the Christians of, um, of their love feast would be this like sexual orgies, they thought. Or they, they accuse the Christians of uh, cannibalism, right? Because they are eating the body of Christ. Very strange. And yet, the Christians also, also were able to prove, to prove their worth, their goodness, their beauty as they went on. We'll, we'll look at some examples. Um, specifically, there was this Roman emperor, Julian, who hated Christians. He sought to return Rome back to its, its pagan religion. I want to, I want to return Rome to, to Julian to the, to the good old days. We used to, to have ancestor worship and Apollo and all the, the, the myriad gods. And Julian thought, he was frustrated with the Christians because they kept on multiplying. And he thought he knew why. Listen to Julian's, Julian's, uh, his, his reason. He says, it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, he called the Christians Galileans off of Jesus of Galilee. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Whereas all men see our people lack aid from us. In other words, the Christians are giving to the poor. They're living a compelling life, and they're giving their money to make sure that not only their own poor are taken care of, but like, those who are Gentiles, who are outside of the church, they're also receiving the money. Julian thought, this is ridiculous. That's why everyone's going to Christianity. And so he actually encouraged his pagan priesthood to copy the Christians. We need to give, he said. But it's, it's, this, this, this ethic of beauty is actually just as much true in our own context as well. Back in the 1980s, Cardinal Ratzinger who would become Benedict XVI, the Pope, he gave an interview about the state of the church. And now his context had been the uber-secular Germany. And Ratzinger had recently been appointed to, to the head of what we would call kind of the center of Catholic apologetics of the, of the whole Roman Catholic Church. He had written a beautiful like defense of the faith called An Introduction to Christianity. But listen to what he says. He says, you know what, you know what the true apologetic is that we need today. This this man who wrote these apologetic books, who's part of the apologetic defense of Christianity, he says it's not arguments, it's beauty. It's beauty that we need. It's beauty, he says, that is the most effective defense and offense for the Christian faith. And in particular, what he points to is the beauty of the saints' lives. The beauty of the saints' lives, to look at a saint, to look at a Christian, how their life 
embodies, manifests the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is what convinces people. It's not arguments. No one comes to Jesus because of arguments. They come because they're compelled by the beauty of Jesus and his church, his followers. That is what truly reveals the splendor and beauty of the Lord's holiness. So what is a beautiful life? What is a beautiful life? I think we want to live a beautiful life, don't we? We want to live a life that's compelling, that's gorgeous. So what might that be? Well, Peter gives us what it's not. If we look at verse 11 again, a beautiful life, according to verse 11, is not an indulgent life. An indulgent life ruled by passions, like petty jealousies, malicious gossip, hedonistic pursuits of sex, drugs, serial parties. That is not good or beautiful. And even I think even secular people understand that. They may say that kind of life is fun. It's not beautiful, though. It's not beautiful. To live beautifully requires self-control, requires intention, and not indulgence, which means that beauty goes against the grain of our culture of entertainment and social media. How much real beauty is on the Internet? Who wants to read a biography of someone's life that says, and he came home every day from work and mindlessly turned on Netflix? Right? Or, and she ordered another package from Amazon that was delivered right to her doorstep. What a beautiful life, right? The thing, the, the, the truth is that Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Kenny Crush, like, they, they want you dulled and enslaved, not beautiful. Right? They will warp your conception of beauty to that of mindless consumption. Mindless consumption. So if we're going to think about beauty, we have to expand our, our imaginations. So one quick suggestion. Ratzinger says we need the lives of the, the saints. Here's, here's one way to get beauty. Read Christian biographies. Read the lives of Christians. You'll find in these biographies good and beautiful lives, and they will inspire you and motivate you. So if if we're going to live in a winsome way that witnesses the beauty of God, we need more help. We need our conception of beauty filled out. So what is truly beautiful? Now, Peter gives us two virtues that will help us live beautifully. So point two, the first, first virtue is submission, the beauty of submission. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. That's actually like, that could be the title of the next section of Peter. Because Peter's gonna, gonna look at all these places where submission needs to be the principle. He's gonna look at, uh, the emperor, submission to the emperor, to the local governments, to, from servants to masters, wives to husbands, church members to elders, or all, the rest of the book of Peter is about submission and suffering. Okay, submission and suffering. So we're in for a real treat for the next couple of weeks. Submission and suffering. Now, in, in, the, in the conservative evangelical subculture that we inhabit, the only time submission is batted, batted around, right, is in discussions of marriage and gender hierarchies, which is unfair. You know why it's unfair? Because all Christians are called to submission. That's what we see here. Peter is saying, Submit 
to every human institution. Submission is not a feminine virtue, it's a Christian virtue. In fact, you could say the Christian life is submission. Submission, it comes from the Greek words, two words, sub, under, mission, meaning arrange. So to submit is to arrange yourself under, to arrange yourself under. To become a Christian is to arrange yourself under Christ's lordship and to submit to others for his sake. We could say submission here is more like service. Be a servant. Now the first realm of submission that Peter gives us is to the political authorities. To the emperor and governor in verse 13 and 14. Now, that was the attitude of Jesus. When Jesus dealt with any kind of authority, there is submission. He practices submission. However corrupt the Jewish council was, Jesus paid the temple tax. He paid it. Or on the way to the cross. Jesus is submitted himself to an unjust political process. Right? And then the most, most blatant, uh, like, injustice was the cross itself. Right? This death. He submitted himself to Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Now, just because we are called to submission does not, this is not an unqualified submission. Our submission is for the Lord's sake. If our submission to the state interferes with our duty to the Lord, it's no longer for the Lord's sake. We do not need to obey. In fact, we don't need to obey. And there's plenty of examples in scripture of that. Right? Nebuchadnezzar outlaws prayer. Daniel keeps praying to God. And he goes to the lion's den for it. Peter himself after Jesus, Peter is preaching the gospel. The Jewish council calls Peter and they say, you got to stop. Stop preaching the gospel. And this is what Peter says. He says, we must obey God rather than men. Whew. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that someday. We must obey God rather than men. So it's not unqualified submission, but still, the general rule is submission. Why? Because this is what it means to be a humble servant of Jesus. In fact, all the beautiful things we looked at last week, right? There were a holy nation. There were a, a precious people. There were God's chosen people. Like God has given us this exalted vocation. And yet it's an exalted vocation to serve. He gives us, he saves us so that we can then become servants of others. It's not this arrogant vocation, but it's actually to be a Christian is to be a servant. A servant who serves from the place of privilege. Now why? Why does Peter say this? He gives the effect in verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. As foreigners, Christians are going to get some hate. They're going to be accused of being bad for the country. And so what he says is, do good. Live beautifully. Live submissive, humble lives. So that you can quiet, so you can silence your accusation. The realm of citizenship becomes a place for gospel witness. And your political and civic duties live in a winsome way that witnesses to the beauty of God. Now, how can submission... Some of you might be saying still like, whoa, 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 whoa. How is submission beautiful? Because it sounds terrible. Submission sounds terrible. Let me approach this in two ways. First of all, have you ever known parents with children that were like really well-behaved and submissive? Or, or maybe uh, to contrast that, have you ever known 
known children that weren't submissive at all? Maybe your own? <laughs> you know how ugly that is when the toddler is just like throwing an all-out timber tantrum? Right? It's, it, there's something about submission that is beautiful and right and true. We have our sound mind. Or think of a country that's generally law-abiding and compare it to one that's not. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name countries here. That's going to give me in trouble. Submission, especially when it is characterized by love and respect, is beautiful. It's beautiful. Or, or uh, uh, let me give you one other angle. I know submit is a dirty word, but what if we recast submission as being a servant? I was having lunch with a prominent political activist in the Castro Valley community who has some substantial accusations against. Like he does not think that Christianity is good for the country. He's very vocal about that. But as I'm talking to him, he's given his life to serve. He started this incredible nonprofit, to, to a very generous nonprofit to help people. And as I'm listening to him, it's because he knows that service is good, that service is beautiful. There's something about submission that even a, even people that want nothing to do with Christ can see the beauty of this beauty of voluntarily submitting yourself to serve someone else's good. Indeed, these are the lives, like the people who submit themselves to a cause or to uh, a particular people, like they're the people that we universally recognize as beautiful. Um, in 1946, a young nun in Calcutta heard the Lord call her to move out of the convent to go live and serve the poor full time. And Sister Teresa became Mother Teresa, right? And, and people that, that, that think Christianity is terrible, like they see Mother Teresa and they see a beauty to this woman's life. Or let me give you um, the beauty of submission. Let me give you a, a more practical example. In my last church, um, one of my dear friends uh, was called Nursery Nancy. Nursery Nancy. She is now in her 80s. I um, and since the late 1970s, Nancy has volunteered almost every Sunday for nursery duty at my old church. She knows every child that passes through nursery, often memorizing their birthdays. And she had some, some of the parents that now have like kids, she had the parents as babies. She knows them. Her nursery service, well actually, she's, she's never married and has no kids of her own. But now, because of her service, her submission, like, she has hundreds of kids. Hundreds of kids. This is a beautiful, like, when I see her life, that looks beautiful. Because she has served faithfully over and over to these children. Her life is beautiful. So, submission. Uh, let's look at the second winsome about virtue. Look at submission, and that's freedom. The beauty of true freedom. Let's look at verse 16. There's a, there's a paradox here, it seems. Verse 16. Live as free people, but not, but do, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Wait a second. Live as free people and live as God's slaves. What do we do with that? Isn't freedom the opposite of slavery? Um, at one level, you could say that modern Americans enjoy unprecedented freedom. 
historically speaking. Like, our political and economic liberty combined to give us incredible agency. Like, if, if I have the money, I can eat, I'm free to eat any global cuisine that I want. Right? I'm free to travel anywhere. I am free to order whatever I want online and have it shipped to my front door, like even a car. Like, that's my liberty, freedom. Uh, psychologist Barry Schwartz, he's actually a visiting professor over at Haas in Berkeley. He has a book called The Paradox of Choice. And it takes aim at what he calls the official dogma of all Western industrial society. That the way, this is, this is what we believe, this is what we think, that the way to maximize societal welfare is to maximize individual freedom and choice. Now he contends that despite the incredible plan of plea of choice that included 175 salad dressings at his local grocery store, right? 175 salad dressings. That this has not made us happier as people. By every major indicator, there's been a tenfold increase in clinical depression over the last hundred years. There's been a doubling of the divorce rate, the tripling of teen suicide. Freedom of choice has not made us happier. Right? We think that more freedom is going to make us happier. More choice is going to make And Barry Schwartz says, no, it doesn't. Now, there's a, a variety of reasons why. Um, I was just a, we're, uh, my family and I will not be here next Sunday because we're going camping uh, for the first time. I've never gone camping, but I'm going to try to get into it. We'll see how this works. could be a disaster. But I need a sleeping bag. I need a sleeping bag. And where do you start? Where do you start? This was a three-day endeavor of online shopping, of this like psychological anxiety as I'm trying to work on this sermon, like, yeah, but what bag should I buy? Like, what bag? Like, the choice is astounding. Like, you need to be a camper to even begin to understand what you would want in a sleeping bag, right? And I'm, I'm not. I'm not. It's the, the choice, the freedom of choice is actually paralyzing. It, it's not freeing, it's enslaving. <laughs> If you don't have the character, which I apparently don't. <laughs> we in Western industrial society conceive freedom as the ability to do whatever and to be whoever we want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But the question has to be asked, is that really freedom? Is that freedom? Because as this freedom has expanded, it's put tremendous pressure on us to create our own identity. Who are you going to be? You could be so many personas. Like your parents, like they just did like one job. You didn't have to have worry about a midlife career change, right? And, and, and as we've gone on, each of those choices has, has put on all sorts of existential, like, wait, who are you going to be? Freedom. This freedom, just because you could be, doesn't mean it's good for us. The result is actually anxiety, paralysis, confusion, fragile egos, anxiety, and depression. Like, like when you look at the internet, you see all these people who are trying to assert their identities through some sort of political identity, right? Some sort of curated Instagram life. But what if freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want or be whoever you want? Because freedom must consider design and creational intent. A car, when is a car most free? When you're driving it on the freeway. Because that's what it's designed to do. 
Now, I might want to assert my car's freedom to fly and, like, to drive it off the cliff. (laughs) That's going to end in destruction, right? Freedom is not about whatever you want to be. It's about who are you made to be? Who are you created to be? You see, the problem with our liberal democracies and our markets is that they presume a morally neutral freedom. But the Bible knows no such thing. To be free as a human is to have the freedom to be and become who God has created you to be. It is oriented to God. To know God is freedom. In other words, freedom has a definite moral shape to it. That's why Peter says don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Because that would not be freedom. And the biggest threat to freedom is not the Republicans or the Democrats, but those sinful desires we talked about back in verse 11. True freedom is having the capacity to choose the good and to actually be good. That's what freedom is. So the resolution to this paradox, right? Peter says, live as free people, because to live as free people is to live as God's slave. To, to be God's servant, that is our human vocation. We were made to be God's servants. And when we are serving God, we are actually free. In essence, Peter is saying that submission is freedom, and freedom is submission to God. So what Peter is saying is that this beautiful life is the one that's submitted to the Lord and one submitted to others for his sake. Now, I know how foreign and weird that sounds. Like our nature and our nurture collaborate to make us believe that self-assertion and gratification is what is truly pleasing and freeing. Like our civic and political discipleship, like from, from, from grade school on, is all about assertion of your rights. Assertion of your privileges and autonomy, your injustices, your grievances. But listen to how Jesus confronts this. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever lives loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew sixteen, twenty four and twenty five. Jesus says, it is the man who actually gives away his life, the woman who gives away her life, who is free, who finds it. And there's a freedom that comes from giving away your life because you no longer have to be worried to try to make it what it is. It's God's. It's not yours. You are then freed from the existential anxiety of who are you going to be because then you can actually be who God has created you to be. You give your life away. And did you catch this in in verse 17? Peter calls us to honor the emperor, not fear him. We fear God alone. We do not need to fear anyone if we fear God. Um, There was an early Christian theologian named Justin Martyr. And the way that he actually became a Christian is he was watching Christians be martyred. And he said, "If if those people can face death honorably, that's worth living and dying for. That's what he saw the beauty of a life given over to service. Now, friends, what we've laid out here is extraordinary, I know. We've tried to say that submission and service is not only freedom, but beautiful. 
So you will not be able to see this as beautiful unless you have experienced it yourself. On the night of Christ's betrayal, at the meal with his disciples, Jesus gets up, he takes off his outer clothing, and he wraps a towel around his waist. He takes a basin of water, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter says, no, don't do that to me. This is, this is below you. You know what Jesus says to him? If, I, if you don't let me serve you, if you don't let me submit to you, then you'll have no part in me. Friends, this is what Jesus invites us to. This is the gospel. Is that Christ submitted himself to serve you. Christ took off his outer garments and bent down and washed your feet. And the way he did that is on the cross. He died. He gave up his life. He submitted to an unjust political authority. For our sake. For our sake, he submitted himself. And he did this to free us from those sinful desires that war against our soul. You are freed from having to make your life. You're freed because Christ has given you his life. So I want to end on two applications, one individual and the other corporate. So individually and familially, that's hard to say, individuals and families, how is God calling you to live beautifully? Here are some questions for you. Does your life bear witness to the sacrificial beauty of our Lord? Now let me try to provoke your imagination. I'm not asking the question, what, what should you do? Or what has God commanded you to do? I'm asking a different question. Like, what has God called you that would actually be beautiful? Or others would see that and say, that is beautiful. What would that be? What about your money? Many of us in this room, not all, but many of us in here are incredibly rich, relatively speaking. Right? Incredibly, world globally, filthy rich in comparison. So what are you doing with that money? How are you using it in a beautiful way? Is it indulgent or selfish? How can you live financially free as slaves of God? What about your time? Right? Some of you, some of you are single and God has blessed you with a lot of time. How are you using that time to live beautifully? To live beautifully always requires living communally. Um, what, what, one thought about this, um, the early church, one of the things the early church was, was known for, there was this uh, Roman practice of, of aborting babies. Um, so if you had a girl, you'd just like leave it out on the hill or in the forest. And the church would go and save those, raise those kids themselves. Adoption has always been a part of the church's civic witness. And friends, that's beautiful. Like adoption actually is one of the most beautiful ways that we as a church, that we as a people, can represent the gospel of Christ. Have you considered adoption or supporting those who have adopted? Now, let's talk about the church and politics. How do we do this communally? Um, much of the political witness, we, what have we talked about here? We talked about beauty, right? Much of the American public witness, like our political witness as American Christians, has no beauty, submission, or freedom, right? Um, but rather, uh, it is, it's an ugly mess, right? American Christians are often the most rebellious for the most trivial, trivial of reasons. And they're often slaves to the Republican and Democratic parties. 
There's a, a, a book that I commend to you. It's called Resident Aliens. It actually came out in the 1980s. Um, it's by Stanley Harbaugh. And um, one of the things he did, he, he, had, he had two critiques. He actually critiqued the church for saying, hey, you guys, both on the evangelical left and the evangelical right, your camaraderie with the political parties, like even though we might say we're for peace, our version of peace as the church of Christ is very different than any other kind of peace. We can't say... Oh, we're for justice as the church because our justice is about Jesus Christ and the justice he brings. And so he just cautioned both sides and said, hey, Christian ethics are peculiar. We are peculiar people. And the second thing he said, the second thing he said, is he said the church, the political task of the church is to be the church and not to transform the world. The political task of the church is to be the church rather than to transform the world. What what he's calling us to, and I think what Peter is calling us to, like way before Peter started talking about the state, he's, he called us a holy nation. We are a politic in and of ourselves. What I mean by that is like the church is a people. And the way that we treat each other, that is our politics. The way that we treat each other, that is way more important then who we vote for come election day. How you treat another Christian who disagrees with your vote is more politically substantial and eternally weightful than who you actually vote for. Because we are a, we are a church. We're a whole, we, we are a politic in and of ourselves. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, your witness as a church is not about who you vote for. Your witness to the world is actually about your love for one another. By this they will know you belong to me. By your love for one another. Friends, there are so many, so much energy spent on like, who Christians should vote for, what a, that's great, that's important. But there is far more energy that should be spent on actually loving each other as each other in the church, within the church. That is beautiful. In the midst of division, a nation that doesn't know how to come together, the church could actually be a place where the politics of Christ can reign and rule. That's compelling. That's compelling. I want to end with one more, one more thing. Uh, Colonel Ratzinger, back in the 80s, he, he said, Christians must not be too easily satisfied. They must make their church into a place where beauty and truth is at home. Without this, the world will become the first circle of hell. Our calling as Christians is to make the world a be- is to, to testify to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are the most beautiful that you have given yourself to us as servants, that you have bound us together. We ask for your forgiveness in all the various ways that we have misidentified freedom. We've made freedom about our own will and our own indulgence. Would you save us from the, the sinful desires that war against our flesh? 
our soul. Would you instead make us a giving and sacrificial sacrificial people, O oh Lord? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.